Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome on this uh, rainy Sunday. And it is one of those uh, rare Sundays when the question that I ask uh, on the morning trivia show was not answered correctly. So, therefore, we are going to put it out there again. Here we go. This food additive, whose name derives from the Greek word for red, is controversial because in a rat study, it was shown to cause cancer in a gland, the name of which derives from the Greek word for shield. So we're looking for both the name of the gland and the food additive that is controversial because it supposedly causes cancer of that gland. And, uh, of course, therein lies an interesting story that we will discuss as soon as I get a correct answer to that question. Uh, Another question. Here we go. What is the annual per capita consumption of hot dogs in North America? So give me an estimate of the annual per capita consumption of hot dogs in North America. That is, on the average, every person in North America over a year eats how many hot dogs? I mean, obviously, we're talking about an average. So there are some people who eat a lot more. Some will eat none at all. But what is the average? Give me a guess for that. And uh, let's see how close you can come. All right. So those are two questions uh, hanging out there. And while you uh, think about those, let's think a little bit about quiche. Let them eat quiche. Well, maybe King Charles didn't exactly say that. But then again, neither did Marie Antoinette utter the words, let them eat cake. As you may know, according to tradition, Charles and Camilla were asked to choose a dish with which to celebrate their coronation. And they chose a quiche. Not just any quiche, the coronation quiche. And the recipe was devised by Mark Flanagan, the royal chef, made with spinach, fava beans, cheddar cheese, tarragon, and of course, cream and eggs. As one can expect these days, there were lots of commentary about this online, with people poking fun at the selection and uh, at the monarchy in general. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a great fan of King Charles, uh, mostly because of his promotion of homeopathy, which I think is an absurd practice. Uh, And he does do some good things. I I, I, uh, like his views on architecture. I I, I think uh, some of uh, the blending of very modern with the classic old in in London doesn't, doesn't really mesh. Uh, I I like some of his views on um, uh, staying away from processed food. Uh, And I'm not about to, you know, poke fun at his, uh, you know, selection of of quiche. uh, Because, uh, you know, served at a coronation lunch, you know, that was a tradition. And or at least, you know, serving some coronation food at lunch during the coronation. That was a tradition. Anyway, the criticisms have ranged from choosing a French dish to quiche being unhealthy because of its fat and cholesterol content. But believe it or not, the origins of quiche trace back not to France, but to Germany, particularly the region that in the Middle Ages, when the quiche was introduced, was known as Lüttringen, 
The area was ceded to France in 1871 after the Franco-German War and was renamed Lorraine, hence Quiche Lorraine. It was from here that the quiche traveled to England where it became very popular. So the fact is that quiche has long been consumed in England. Uh, it was not just introduced by Charles. As far as nutrition goes, the 18 grams of saturated fat in a serving, well, it's about five grams more than is suggested maximum for a day. And uh, the cholesterol found in lard and butter and eggs will exceed the recommended 300 milligrams. Although we now know that dietary cholesterol is not the villain that it has been portrayed to be. For anyone averse to lard, it can be replaced with more butter. Uh, true, a quiche would lose the healthy battle to a vegetable stir-fry, stir but uh, as I've stated many times, I, I have an issue with individual foods being classified as healthy or unhealthy. It's the overall diet mat that matters, evaluating every morsel that goes into one's mouth as being angelic or demonic, that's, that's just folly. It's totally possible to incorporate quiche into a healthy diet. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we should you know, eat uh, quiche uh, for breakfast, lunch, and, and, and dinner, but uh, I think it's perfectly fine to put it into the rotation of, of, uh, of meals that one serves. And as long as uh, you know, the diet mostly plant-based foods, because these days we know that that's optimal, uh, there's no reason to, to you know, totally eschew um, animal products. So uh, that's on behalf of, of quiche. And, uh, you know, uh, just because King Charles recommended it doesn't mean that you have to oppose it. Let me also talk to you about uh, something that we call the G-suit. So I was asked a question about this. I was asked uh, on, on, in an email the other day what the G stands for in uh, G-suit. Well, it actually stands for gravity. <clears throat> in uh, 1940, Professor Frank Cotton, a physiologist at the University of Sydney, used two women's rubber bathing suits to solve a problem faced by fighter pilots engaged in aerial combat. He invented the G-suit and thereby solved the problem of pilots passing out when they made sharp turns with their airplanes. As jet aircraft were being developed during the Second World War, pilots faced a new difficulty. At such great speeds, as the plane banked, blood rushed from the pilot's head into his body. And this could cause temporary blindness, and sometimes the pilot would even pass out. That, of course, is not a good thing for a fighter pilot. So Cotton thought that an inflatable suit could apply pressure to the body and force the blood back into the head. He fashioned a prototype out of two rubber bathing suits, and by 1944, Allied airmen were wearing the G-suits that we now commonly associate with fighter pilots and, of course, astronauts. Uh, astronauts wear underwear that will... Um, prevent blood from pooling in uh, one part of the anatomy, you know, it, because it, it just squeezes all around. So the blood spreads uh, properly uh, everywhere. And uh, who would have thought that, you know, the uh, discovery of or the, the development of the G-suit would start from uh, 
looking at two women's rubber bathing suits. And um, those were the ones that were originally used to make the, the prototype. <clears throat> so I do have the questions hanging out there. I want an estimate about the annual per capita consumption of hot dogs in North America. And also, I'm looking for the food additive, whose name derives from the Greek word for red, and which is controversial because in a rat study, it was shown to cause cancer in a gland, the name of which derives from the Greek word for shield. So I'm looking for the name of the gland, and I'm looking for the name of that food additive. If you know the answer, 514-790-0800, 514-790-0800, or you can text your answers, any question that you may have, to 514-800. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Let me just uh, briefly comment. Uh, let me just briefly comment on another one of uh, the Quebec government's linguistic follies. And this, of course, is this uh, raising of fees for out-of-province students. What makes a university great, and indeed I think we at McGill are a great university, we attract people from around the world. And it is this interaction, the, the people working together from everywhere, uh, which uh, advances education. And to, to try to somehow impair people coming here is, is totally short-sighted. And to put this into a linguistic context, it, it just doesn't make any sense. First of all, many of the students who come to Quebec from other provinces in Canada come here because they want to experience the French milieu and are keen to learn French. And furthermore, uh, the vast majority of these students do not stay in Quebec. They go away. So it's not a question of sort of, you know, uh, diluting the um, uh, French language here by, by infusing more English-speaking people. You know, of course, this, this, this sort of linguistic eugenics is, is nonsense in the first place. Uh, we should try to speak as many languages as possible to communicate in the best possible way around the world. And, and of course, today, English has become the sort of the lingua franca. It has become what Esperanto once aimed to be. It is the global language. And uh, I mean, it's to, to, to try to discourage uh, anyone from, from using you know, uh, English uh, it just makes no sense these days. And uh, to, to discourage students from coming to McGill from other provinces by raising the tuition makes no sense in, in any way. It is not something that is going to benefit uh, Quebec. Anyway, all right, back to the matters at hand. I did get some uh, answers uh, to some questions. Uh, as far as the hot dogs go, the answers that I've been getting are not, uh, not too far off the mark. Uh, they range from 70 to, to 100. That's not a bad guess. Uh, the actual number is about 200. 200. That's a lot of hot dogs because, of course, you know, there are a lot of people in North America. So if everyone on average eats 200, that translates to over 20 billion hot dogs eaten every year. 20 billion hot dogs eaten every year, just in North America. And uh, someone has made a calculation about that. 
And if you put them end to end, that would be enough of a distance to stretch between the moon and the earth four times. Just think about that for a moment. That's the number of hot dogs that we're eating. Uh, four times the distance between the earth uh, and the moon. So, uh, yeah, 70 or 100, that was not a bad answer to that. Now, I did also get an answer to the uh, the other question that I asked uh, about the food additive that is named the Greek word for red and uh, which affects an organ, the name of which comes from the Greek word for shield. Uh, many people got the thyroid part of it right. Uh, thyroid is the gland located in the neck, of course, and, and it is, is shaped somewhat like a, an ancient Greek shield, which is where the name uh, comes from. But uh, uh, the food additive, so far, uh, nobody has gotten... Uh, no, sorry, someone just got it, the answer correct now. Uh, some of you answered iodine, uh, no, uh, iodine is certainly not named from the Greek word for red, but erythrocene is. And we also know that as red dye number three. And um, there is controversy about this dye. It has been in the news uh, just this week because California is apparently going to ban red dye number three starting in 2027, along with a, a number of other uh, food additives. Now, just to be clear, uh, I have absolutely no issue with banning food dyes. Why? Because I don't think they serve any purpose. They certainly don't serve any nutritional purpose. And uh, they actually attract uh, particularly children to foods that, that we call junk foods. You know, all of the, the candies out there, those are the things that are highly colored. And also there's enough evidence in the scientific literature about possible behavioral problems caused by uh, certain food additives, particularly uh, dyes. But this business of the cancer connection uh, there are all kinds of posts that, you know, that are there on the line urging us to, to sign petitions to get this cancer-causing food dye off of the uh, market. And, of course, they very happily tell us about California's uh, decision. Anyway, I decided, you know, because of this whole business of uh, the cancer connection, I thought I would look into where all of this comes from. You know, and, and how did this story get uh, started? Well, uh, concerns about erythrocin, which is a synthetic dye, and it's been used as a food additive since 1907. And the concerns were first raised back in the 1970s uh, when it was noted that the molecular structure of erythrocin resembled that of thyroid hormones. And uh, like the thyroid hormones, it had iodine in its molecular structure. Well, any substance that may have hormone-like activity rings an alarm bell with toxicologists. Anyway, as early as 1981, a study in subjects who were given 25 milligrams of erythrocin a day, that's 10 times the average per capita daily intake in North America, found absolutely no effect on thyroid function. Now, the rats, which are always the creatures that are, are 
in this cancer connection. Well, they first crawled into the picture in 1982 with a study that showed an increase in the incidence of thyroid tumors in rats fed a diet containing 4% erythrocin. 4% of their diet, that's some 10,000 times what the average North American consumes per day. This to me is, is not relevant. A study in 1987 with human subjects showed an increase in thyroid stimulating hormone. Uh, this is a hormone produced by the pituitary glands that, that causes the thyroid to produce its hormones. And uh, th an elevation of, of this uh, thyroid stimulating hormone and people take erythrocin, that, that was a bit concerning because anything that stimulates excessive activity in the thyroid gland could in fact lead to cancer. But the amount given to the subject that caused an increase was 200 milligrams a day, a totally unrealistic dose. There was no increase seen at 60 milligrams a day, which is still 30 times the average exposure. But this wasn't even the study that caused all of this uh, uh, controversy and, and, and the drive to drive erythrocin out of the market. That makes for an even more interesting connection. But before I tell you that little part of the story, we'll check to see what's happening in the world. We're going to take a break for news. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Okay, since we did have a correct answer to my questions, I will toss a couple of new ones out at you. First one, roughly how many fortune cookie factories are there in China? So I want to guess on the number of fortune cookie factories in China. And here's the next question. It was invented in 1922 in Bonn, Germany by Hans Riegel and contains glucose syrup, sugar, gelatin, dextrose, and contains less than 2% of citric acid, artificial and natural flavors, palm oil, palm kernel oil, carnauba wax, white beeswax, yellow beeswax, yellow number five, red number 40, blue number one. What is this product? And it was invented 1922 in Bonn, Germany by Hans Riegel. And uh, gelatin is a key ingredient in this product. If you know the answer, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text your questions and comments to 514-800. Now, let me get back to what I was talking about with red dye number three, which is called uh, erythrocin. And the pivotal study uh, that uh, stirred up the, the hornet's nest and uh, launched this whole business of trying to, to eliminate it from our life. So this was a, a, an experiment that was carried out in 1988, uh, and it was reported in the Japanese Journal of Cancer Research. So let me try to describe this to you. So rats were injected with um, a nitrosamine compound. Now, nitrosamines are known carcinogens, and these are compounds that were, are very often used in research to trigger cancer in, in test animals so that various treatments can be studied. So anyway, the rats were injected with nitrosamine, and some of these rats were fed a diet that contained 4% erythrocin. 4% of the diet 
That's a huge percentage. Anyway, after a month, half the thyroid gland was surgically removed in one set of these rats. Four months later, all the animals were sacrificed and their thyroid glands examined. The rats that had been fed erythrocin and had half their thyroid removed presented more tumors in the remaining half gland than the animals that had not been fed this colorant. But, and this is a really big but, the rats that were fed erythrocin and had not been subjected to the thyroidectomy, that is the removal of half of their thyroid, they showed no such effect, none. And yet it is this study that is generally quoted when linking red dye number three to cancer. This is not exactly one, what would call compelling evidence. Uh, but then again, when it comes to food dyes, do we really need compelling evidence for a ban? Uh, let's face it. I mean, these things don't have any nutritional benefit. Uh, so when you have a risk profile where the benefit is essentially zero, then why take any kind of risk, even if it is far-fetched? And I think this one, I think it is far-fetched. Because first of all, to, to, uh, to put these rats on a diet that contains by weight 4% of erythrocin, uh, by uh, human uh, comparison, that would be something like one ten thousandth of the human daily dose. So it really doesn't mean uh, very much. But I will go along with you know saying that uh, uh, we can do without uh, dyes. Well, perhaps uh, there are some dyes that that really don't raise any concern. I mean, dyes that are extracted from berries, for example, because of course we have a long history of. of eating berries safely, or dyes that are extracted from beets or from some algae, I, I don't think that there's much of an issue, issue there. But indeed, some of the, the synthetic dyes, and in, it's not that they are dangerous because they are synthetic. Uh, these just happen to be synthetic. Uh, and, uh, you know, they re raise enough uh, uh, issues. And uh, this is one area where I think the uh, precautionary principle can indeed come into into play because when when there's no benefit why would you want to take any kind of uh, a risk at all so that's the story with uh, uh, erythrocin i'm sure that we'll be hearing more about it in canada erythrocin is allowed um, both in cosmetics and in foods although it is not used uh, very much now, in the U.S., there's something very interesting. Uh, it is actually not allowed to be used in cosmetics, but it is allowed to be used in food. And that's because uh, the rules for cosmetics are different than they are uh, for food. And it was uh, introduced into food way back in 1907 in the, in the U.S., and it has been grandfathered in as uh, something that is, is um, generally recognized as, as safe. Uh, whereas its use uh, for cosmetics was introduced much, much later. And by that time, some of these studies on rats had been published. 
So then it was deemed not to be suitable for cosmetics. But you have this rather curious situation where something that has been banned in cosmetics is allowed in food. Now, again, uh, let me mention that I don't think that there's a significant risk in uh, this red dye number three, either in cosmetics or in food. But I will also say that in food, it is uh, just not something that is uh, is necessary. And we can uh, certainly do uh, do without it. And when, when we're making decisions you know, based on, on toxicology, it, it uh, always comes down to looking for the risk-benefit ratio. As I've said so many times, we make decisions based on risk-benefit every single day of our life. When we decide whether or not we're going to drink coffee, you know, it's a risk-benefit determination. There are some risks and some people, it can cause palpitations, it can cause elevated blood pressure. And you weigh that against uh, the potential benefits of the pleasure of, of um, uh, having uh, the coffee. And we do this with virtually everything that we eat, with every cosmetic we use. Of course, we don't do it consciously. We don't you know, put these on a mental balance every day and, and weigh it. But uh, behind the scenes, of course, that is exactly what we do. Well, let's go in front of the scenes and see what is happening in traffic. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. I think we have some uh, people on the line with answers. Let's see what Jay has to say. Jay. Hello. How are you? Hi. You got an answer for me? I got an answer. It's a good old coming there. Yes, it is. Yes, You're right. Sir. It is a. It is indeed the gunny bear. It was invented in 1922 by Hans Riegel in uh, Germany, and uh, it, is, of course, is still around. And it is sold by the uh, um, Herbro company, right? And and the the name of that comes from his name, Hans H A Riegel R I and B O from Bonn. Uh, so Haribo. 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 Not Haribo. Not <laughs> yeah. Haribo. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things that should be an occasional treat, not something that you want to eat all the time because, of course, it is very high in, in sugar. There's something else with these gummy bears, and, and there's many gummy products around. Uh, they're very adept at removing uh, your crowns if you have crowns on your teeth. And, uh, you know, because they're very sticky. And if the crown isn't on firmly, it can come off. And I speak of experience about that. And ever since that happened to me, I haven't touched a gummy bear since. But I suppose most people eat them quite safely. So that's quite right. Uh, it's uh, Haribo's uh, gummy bears that were invented in 1922 in Germany. Okay, I wonder if Jonathan has uh, an answer to the fortune cookie problem that I asked. Jonathan? Hi, Dr. Joe. I Hi. would think that there's only a handful, if any, fortune cookie factories in China since fortune cookies are a North American product. <laughs> Exactly. There's zero fortune cookie factories in China. They don't know what fortune cookie is there. Uh, this is a North American uh, adaptation of, of uh, an ancient Japanese uh, uh, thing where they did use little strips of, of paper put into cakes to tell fortune, but it has nothing at all to do with China. 
So yeah, there are no fortune cookie factories in China. Uh, They're all made right here in, uh, in North America. Okay, so that is it. We've had our questions answered. Uh, great. Uh, let me uh, let me talk about uh, well, I, I guess in in relationship to to talking about sort of junky foods. Uh, let me mention Frosted Flakes. Uh, Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam. You know they're in trouble in Mexico. And these cartoon characters, they're synonymous with Kellogg's Frosted Flakes and with Fruit Loops. And believe it or not, in Mexico, they've been banned from appearing on cereal boxes. What is their crime? Their advertising is cereal that contains about 37 grams of sugar per 100 grams of cereal. And according to a law instituted in Mexico, Cartoon characters cannot appear on a cereal that is so high in sugar. The idea is to limit the consumption of sugar by children to whom Tony the Tiger and Toucan Sam would appeal. Toucan Sam originally was voiced by Mel Blanc, who was also the voice of Bugs Bunny. Uh, And uh, Toucan Sam has been promoting Fruit Loops since 1963. Tony the Tiger has been advertising Frosted Flakes since 1952. He was even friends with Superman. In the 1950s, George Reeves starred in the television version of the superhero, and Kellogg's capitalized on the program's popularity by hiring Reeves to star in a series of commercials for Frosted Flakes. He wasn't allowed to wear the copyrighted Superman suit, He had to wear street clothes that resembled the clothes worn by Clark Kent, Superman's secret identity. Besides banning cartoon characters of sugar-sweetened cereals, Mexican foods and beverages that are high in sugar also have a warning in the shape of a stop sign. Obviously, companies that produce such products are not happy with being forced to feature a warning and are taking some creative steps. Coca-Cola, for example, has labels on both sides of the bottle, but only one has the warning. They ask stores to place the product on shelves in such a way that the label with no warning faces the consumer. Stores are happy to comply because, of course, warnings decrease sales. The inclusion of artificial sweeteners also requires a warning in Mexico. One way to get Tony the Tiger back on the box is to use allulose, an uncommon naturally occurring sugar that is poorly absorbed by the body and therefore contributes fewer calories than other sugars. It isn't regarded as an artificial sweetener and therefore requires no warning. Other countries are looking at ways to get consumers to reduce sugar intake and are contemplating regulations, but are meeting loads of opposition from manufacturers. In the U.S., they even argue that warnings on foods are unconstitutional because they limit free speech. Well, that's poor argument. I mean, limiting sugar intake is a good idea. Again, I don't think it needs to be totally eliminated. I'm not in favor of totally eliminating anything. I mean, I, I like a nice uh, dessert as much as uh, as anyone. But uh, you've got to consume these things within reason. And, uh, you know, the... 
most Americans, well, most North Americans don't consume sugar within reason. The sugar consumption is um, extremely high, and that has consequences, uh, obviously, in terms of putting on weight, in um, uh, causing problems with uh, for uh, people who have uh, diabetes. So Mexico is sort of, I, I think, on, on the right track with putting warnings on cereals that have excessive amounts of, of, of sugar. Now, there are cereals, of course, that have a limited amount of sugar, uh, uh, things like Fiber One or Brand Buds. Those are very low in, in sugar, and they are also high in fiber, which is something that we need to be looking at in terms of increasing in our, in our diet. All right, we're almost out of time, but I did have a, a, a question about why erythromycin is so called. How come it has the, the, the word erythro in it? Because as I mentioned earlier, that comes from the, from the ancient Greek meaning red. And honestly, I, I don't know. Uh, erythromycin is an antibiotic, and uh, I do know that it comes uh, from... Um, a bacterial strain of Streptomyces erythreus. That's the name of the uh, of the org soil organism from which it comes. Now, I would have thought that the reason that uh, it's called Streptomyces erythreus is because it has some red tinge in it. But from the pictures that I've seen, I, I don't see any red. So I don't know why Streptomyces uh, erythreus, this soil organism, I don't know why it has the, the prefix erith in it, which implies red. So I guess I'm a bit red-faced over not knowing that answer. But unfortunately, we are once again out of time today. But we will be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in life comes out just right.